south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 308, covering the week of May 9th through May 13th, 2022. Glad to have you back in the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, like our Gab page, and subscribe to our YouTube page. YouTube page is a great resource. you got all of our lectures podcasts, Abbeville U videos. It's fantastic. You should be subscribing to it. Also go to our webpage, abbevilleinstitute.org. That's A-B-B-E-V-I-L-L-E institute.org. While you're there, give us an email address. We'll give you a free ebook exploring the Southern tradition. Our gift free of charge, free to you, just for simply giving us that email address. And of course, you get on our email list, so we'll send you a daily dose of Dixie Money through Friday. You also get uh, all kinds of notifications about things that we're doing. want to mention that our summer school is coming up July uh, 5th through 8th at Seabrook Island, South Carolina. Uh, more information about that is on our website. Just go to abbevilleinstitute.org, click on the Events tab, or just go to the middle of the page, and you can find our events. Also, while you're there, go ahead and click on that Abbeville Academy, right? Abbeville Academy. This is when we have our Zoom webinars, which we typically have once or twice a month. All of those previous webinars are available at Abbeville Academy. So you got to enroll there, but it's free to do that. And then, of course, you can purchase any of those old webinars if you want to and be on the lookout. If you're on the email list, you get those notifications for those webinars. We will have one again in May. We had two. We had one in April. Uh, we'll have one in May. Uh, topic undecided yet, but we will be having that at the end of the month. So be on the lookout for that in your email. It will be good, I'm sure. Also, you can click on that donate button when you're at abbevilleinstitute.org. All of these things we do exist on your generous contributions alone. So if you like the podcast, the website, the webinars, the conferences, the Abbeville U videos, all of that stuff, all of that stuff costs money. And so your donations help us do that. And we have some pretty interesting projects we're working on behind the scenes. So a lot of things are going on with the Institute. We need your support to do all those things. So please consider that tax deductible donation. Also click on the shop tab while you're there. Get our logo and all kinds of cool stuff. And rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Uh, let people know you like it. Um, share it around on social media. We're not on Facebook, but you can share our links, our articles on Facebook, or our videos, anything else we do. It's certainly available to share. So go ahead and do that and get your friends interested in the Southern tradition. Now, great week at the Institute. Uh, we were giving it back to the North this week, and I think that's one of the fun things. Um, we had a... This is one thing we, we try to do at times, is um, talk about Northern studies, right? And uh, that's something that, you know, we have a Southern studies program in every Southern university in the United States. Well, why don't we have a Northern studies program? Because in, the, in, the, in reality, it was the North that was uh, generally uh, the oddball. I mean, Northerners were seen to be the weird people. This is, you know, Washington Irving. If you look at the Legend of Sleepy Hollow it takes place in New York. You've got these these uh, traditional New Yorkers there, and uh, the lady in question is from a prominent New York family that Ichabod Crane is trying to persuade to marry him. And uh, Ichabod Crane is a quintessential Yankee. He is a typical Yankee, and everybody in New York makes fun of the guy. This is why they run him out of town. All the normal people in New York get rid of this weird-looking Yankee who does some weird things. And so uh, he's, a, he's an opportunist. He's trying to marry into this prominent family, so he has money. I mean, that was it. If you read The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, it is a complete indictment of the Yankee. That's all it is. I mean, Washington Irving didn't like Yankees. He loved 
the South, by the way. His, his, plant, his, his home, Sunnyside, was modeled after a Southern plantation. He loved the South, spent a lot of time in the South. Um, in fact, um, he, was, uh, he had met at one point, or at least she talks about it, uh, uh, Madame Levert, who was um, a prominent member of Alabama and Florida society. Her, her father um, was uh, responsible for choosing Tallahassee as the capital of Florida. But um, Irving was friends with all those people, right? I mean, he was down there, met Levert and when she was a little girl. And, uh, you know, Madame Levert was a pretty prominent figure in the South for years. Um, and uh, her home in, in Mobile was, um, is a, I think it's still uh, available for tours. Uh, but she's um, a very important part of Alabama history. But, you know, Irving spent time there. And so he was aware of the differences between the North and the South at that period of time. And it wasn't slavery. It was cultural. And everyone knew it. Everyone knew the North and South were different culturally. And it, I mean, slavery didn't create that. This was, a, this was something that was there long before slavery became a political problem in the United States. And that's really what it was at its core for most people. It was a political problem. What to do with it wasn't a moral issue for a lot of people. In some cases it was, North and South. People thought that uh, in the North there were certainly people that thought slavery was a moral problem. In the South, people thought some, certainly some people thought slavery was a moral blessing, right? So um, you, had, you had these different views on slavery in the United States. Uh, but then, again, the culture would have been existent, the cultural differences, without the institution of slavery interjected into it. I mean, these were different peoples. We see it in, in uh, England itself in the, in the 17th century, when you have the English Civil War. You know, Oliver Cromwell was a different kind of person, and his minions were different kind of people than the Cavaliers who they were fighting in the English Civil War. And you certainly had that here in the United States as well, a certain attitude and uh, the way that people conducted themselves culturally in the United States, South and North. So oftentimes we have, uh, we look at the South as being the peculiar other, right? And uh, that's another important point to make about Calhoun. He used the term peculiar a lot. He didn't mean it odd. Peculiar, we think, means odd. That's peculiar. No, it was unique, right? That's what he meant by peculiar. In fact, he called American government peculiar. It was unique, when he talked about the innovations, the things that made American government great, well, one of those was, of course, uh, federalism. And he talk, called that peculiar. It was unique to America. So when he called the slavery the peculiar institution, it was unique to America and how America uh, conducted the institution. That was his point. It was always unique. So uh, we, we use terms that we don't even know what the meaning of it is. We just say it's peculiar. Right, uh, because that makes it sound odd that everyone else in the United States was, you know, of the mindset that slavery was odd. Well, it, it wasn't for most people in the 19th century. I mean, there are many other countries in the world that had had slavery at that point. The British had just abolished it just a few decades before the United States uh, went through its war. So it wasn't really that odd for most people. Um, it was something that was there. People didn't like it, and rightfully so. But it was uh, something that was uh, seen to be as it was normal for much of human history and in human condition. It's only been the last uh, century or a little over a century that we've had this relative aversion to the institution in Western civilization. So um, that's, that's an important point to make. Now, that said, why do we need Northern Studies? Because you have Lincoln's second inaugural, which uh, this is a great piece. New writer for us. Um, he's a, a graduate student 
in California. But he he loves the Southern tradition. He's interested in it. And uh, this this particular uh, piece is a discussion of Lincoln's second inaugural address. And so he cites certain part of the inaugural and then talks about how Lincoln um, Lincoln was uh, playing fast and loose with the facts oftentimes in this in this inaugural. Um, and I think it's it's important to always point out where Lincoln was making some real serious errors. And we often we often have this deification of Abraham Lincoln that he was this great statesman, that he was uh, someone who was always telling the truth. We know Lincoln lied a lot. In fact, our image of Lincoln is often fostered by uh, the fact that a lot of his papers and other things were destroyed. Now, there's a carefully crafted image of Abraham Lincoln by his son and also by various historians. This is where we had uh, Kevin Oren Johnson on our, our webinar and talking about Lincoln sold slaves. And um, this is an interesting argument. You know, Lincoln was involved in the estate of his wife and they sold off slaves in the estate and made money on it and Lincoln was fine with it. So Lincoln's a slave. He sold slaves. Just like Robert E. Lee sold slaves, or you know, actually Lee didn't sell any. He freed slaves. Lincoln could have freed them. He sold them, meaning they stayed in bondage. He sold them. Lee freed slaves. Lincoln sold slaves. Uh, the other thing that's interesting about Lincoln, of course, he often defended slave owners. Now, as Johnson points out, Lincoln was more of a closer when it came to a lawyer. You know, he didn't actually argue the cases oftentimes. He came in and gave the last speech of the proceeding to try to persuade the jury. Because Lincoln was a good speaker. and But you couldn't believe a word he said. Everyone knew this. Lincoln told tall tales. He told lies. People knew it. That's why, I mean, honest Abe. Lincoln was a, a, a he told fairy tales. And so when you look at Lincoln's public career, he was very good at making speeches. Always was good at making speeches. But most of his speeches contained a lot of false information. So uh, when you look at his second inaugural address, and people often point to this and say, there it is. There's Lincoln the conciliator. Look, he said, with malice toward none. But what, were the, what was the real, what was the facts on the ground, right, when Lincoln made these speeches and he said things like, with malice toward none? What was really happening on the ground? Was there really malice toward none? Well, we know that in this particular time period, Lincoln was certainly all in on total war in the South. Was that malice toward none? Was that really malice toward none? Was Sherman's march through Georgia malice toward none and into South Carolina? Was Sheridan's burning of the Shenandoah Valley with malice toward none? Was James Harrison Wilson's raid through, through uh, Alabama into Georgia, was that malice toward none? Real question. What about all the things the Union Army was doing when the war was over? Was that malice toward none? We know that the Union Army had a tremendous amount of malice in it. Uh, and of course, you know, by default, I mean, obviously the su Southerners had a lot of malice toward the North too, um, evidenced by things like I'm a good old rebel. But you can understand in some cases why this was happening. I mean, people are invading your state and your town and your community and your home. Of course, you're going to have malice toward those people. What did the, I mean, where did the South, other than moving into Pennsylvania, ever invade the North? Jefferson pointed this out all the way back in the early 19th century. What have we ever done? I mean, the, South, the North rides us hard. Calhoun asks, what have we ever done to them? What have we ever done to them? Nothing. 
but it's the Yankee ideology. It's the Yankee mentality. Something has to be done to these people because they're not like us, and they have to be like us. It's a city upon a hill mentality. They have to be like us, and if we don't, they're not like us, well, we're going to force them to be like us. Now, if you haven't heard, Harvard University has published a study, and they've come out with a mea culpa that Harvard was involved in slavery, and because it was involved in slavery, we have to give $100 million dollars to efforts to ensure that people know about this. And um, this is pretty funny, I mean, because, well, people have known about this. It's just that the North is slow to recognize these things. And so Jack Marcourt uh, published a nice piece on this uh, about, you know, Northern slavery. And so he says... Today's rewriting of history, the 1619 Project in particular, would have one believe that the first black slaves in America were the, were the Africans brought to Virginia that year. Those Africans, however, were actually slaves who were being taken to the colonies in Latin America by a Portuguese slaver. Following the slave ship's capture in the Caribbean by a British privateer, they became indentured servants after being taken to Jamestown and thus able to gain their freedom after a period of servitude. This was not the case in the relation to three black slaves brought to New England by Samuel Maverick four years later. They not only remained slaves, but became the forerunners of both the North's large slave population and the New England slave trade, started by Maverick, that was expanded into a major industry by those who followed him. Many of the later slave traders were prominent figures in New England's early history, such as Jonathan Belcher, a Harvard graduate, who was the colonial governor of Massachusetts and New Hampshire from 1730 to 1741, and later the governor of New Jersey from 1747 to 1757. Another Bostonian who made his fortune in the African slave trade was Peter Fennell, he later became one of the colony's leading philanthropists and donated the market hall bearing his name to the city in 1740. That building became the venue for secessionist meetings held prior to the Revolutionary War and is now dubbed America's Cradle of Liberty. The Cabot family, one of the best known and most highly respected names in Boston, also derived much of its fortune from the slave trade started by John Cabot and his son Joseph in the 18th century. The shipping of slaves from Africa as well as the transport of rum and opium was later carried on by Joseph's three sons until the Atlantic slave trade officially ended on January 1st, 1808. While not a slave trader, John Winthrop, one of the founders of the Massachusetts Bay Colony and his governor for 12 years, did own slaves, and in 1641 he served on the committee that wrote the colony's first guiding laws, the Body of Liberties, a section of which legalized slavery in Massachusetts. So, yeah, I mean, look, this is part of New England history. Now, it's not saying that people didn't know some of this stuff. Of course people did, but they often uh, show uh, they often show the, uh, the hypocrisy of northern disdain for the South. This was a national enormity, not just a southern peculiar enormity. It was a national enormity. Nor, uh, nor, uh, enormity where you had slavery throughout the United States, throughout the American colonies, and it was something that North and South recognized as part of uh, colonial life. And then later into, uh, when, when, when the United States became independent, when the states became independent in 1776, every state had slaves. Not one didn't. And so this is, this is again, swept under the rug usually. Uh, so this piece is good, and when you when you look at what Northerners say about the South, though, of course, one of the things they're going to do 
is say the South was not honorable, right? Southerners were not courageous. Southern soldiers were just traitors. And of course, when you look at the evidence, it's simply not true. Um, I've mentioned, I think I mentioned before, one of our, one of our uh, colleagues at the Institute has uh, Confederate ancestors who were actually abolitionists. But they, they fought for the South and uh, they supported the secession. I mean, but they're abolitionists. So you had a diversity of people in the South in all kinds of different ways who were doing things to support Southern independence. And these were honorable people and courageous people. And so we had the speech, uh, speech by Martin O'Toole, um, and the title is Honorable and Courageous Patriots. It was delivered at Stone Mountain on April 30th, 2022. Of course, it's the state of Georgia and other people, not the state of Georgia, but people in Georgia tried to block uh, any type of commemoration there for Confederate Memorial Day at Stone Mountain, which, of course, Stone Mountain, by charge, has to be used for Confederate remembrances. Uh, but this, I mean, when you when you look at this, and of course Martin O'Toole is heavily involved in the SCV, and he's uh, involved in the litigation side of it, trying to keep monuments up and Southern symbols up. I mean, this is uh, this is hard work. Uh, but when you look at what he says here, and of course, uh, one of the things that's often often mentioned is that, of course, secession was treason. And when you, when you look at that charge, it's very easy to see that secession is not treason against the United States. Secession is a move for, for independence. And, of course, Southerners recognized that secession was possible for years. So did Northerners. Northerners understood secession was possible. In fact, it was the North that wanted to get out first. They were the most pr uh, prominent proponents of secession in the 19th century until the South took that mantle in the middle of the 19th century. But you go back even to the 18th century... You go back in the 1790s, moving into uh, the early 1800s, the North wanted out. They wanted out badly. They didn't like the fact that the Jeffersonians were running the government. They didn't like the fact that the Republicans thwarted their plans when John Adams was president. They wanted out. And they wanted out because they didn't see any way forward in a union with, South with, with farmers, essentially, but Southerners. And they thought that the population growth of the United States was going to favor the, the farming sections, the agricultural sections of the United States, and they would never win elections. That their commercial and industrial interests were going to be thwarted constantly by Southern agrarian interests. And so they wanted out of the United States. They wanted to secede. And I think that's the interesting part of all of this, right? The North understood the game, the political game in the 1790s when they approached John Taylor, two Northerners approached John Taylor about secession then. 1794. And by 17, uh, you know, by, by 1798, they want out. Uh, I mean, more people were wanting out. We want out of the United States. <clears throat> Why? Because, well, it was thought the French were going to be too favorable with the, too, too in line with the United States. They wanted, they were more pro-British. That was a big thing. <clears throat> There's actually a book written about this, how Jay's Treaty, was really the most important part in the formation of American political parties. Not anything else, but foreign policy and who the North wanted to side with and who the South wanted to side with. And It was Britain and France that were driving American party formation. Not economic interests or social interests, but foreign policy interests were, were highly important at that time. So we've got, uh, we've got this situation where <clears throat> Northerners were certainly promoting secession for a long period of time before Southerners actually started 
saying it was necessary. Now, it didn't mean Southerners didn't think it could be possible. I mean, Jefferson thought it could be possible. Everyone thought it could be possible. In fact, the entire reason we have the Constitution is because people thought it could be possible. You know, Edmund Randolph supports ratification of the Constitution in Virginia because he thinks that disunion is a real possibility. But, of course, Patrick Henry said, I'd rather have disunion than this stupid Constitution. It'd be better to have no union with these people than this ridiculous Constitution. No one listened, but that's exactly what was happening. So um, it's, it's important to note that secession was thought by the founding generation to be highly possible and legal. Right? Nobody thought it was illegal to leave the Union. You accede to the document. You can secede from the document in a convention. The voice of the people, the will of the people of the state, this is how it happens. And notice, notably, right, when the South did secede in 1860 and 61, they did, did so through conventions. The same method that was used to ratify the Constitution, they used to get out of the Union. And when you look at how you know, amendments are added to the Constitution that can be done in convention. You look at um, how other constitutions were drafted and written. It was done through convention. Conventions are the voice of the people. Calhoun pointed out conventions are necessary. You have to have conventions. And so, again, this very important part of the American tradition is lost, as we talked about last week. It's lost when you tear down the Southern tradition. Conventions matter. Even New England was using conventions, the Hartford Convention, right? I mean, conventions matter. You hold a convention. It's elected by the legislatures. It's called by the legislatures. They're elected by the people, but called by the legislatures. And then the, they express the will of the people. And whatever that will would be, it's the voice of the people. The people of the state. Not the people of the United States, but the people of the state. So that's very, very important. You know, the Philadelphia Convention, the Annapolis Convention... Convention of delegates, not legislatures, but delegates from the states. Very important process of American political history. We don't do conventions anymore. We should. We should hold more conventions. We should have more voice of the people. And if we had conventions, and these conventions were actually doing things like saying, well, this, this particular federal law is unconstitutional, this federal law is unconstitutional, we're not doing this, that's the voice of the people. It's not the legislature. It's the voice of the people themselves to have a convention. And usually they're, they're larger, and of course they have a more diverse uh, group of people there. You're going to have not just, you're not going to have your state legislators there. You're going to have other people involved in this. And so that's an important thing to note. So I, I love that piece. Um, you know, Southern soldiers were honorable people. They were courageous people, and they should be respected. They were fighting for what they thought was right, most of them for simple independence, for hearth and home, it's it's a noble cause. No more, no less noble than what Americans were doing in 1776, 1777, 1778, 1775. No less noble than that. Those Many of those people were slaveholders too. As the 1619 Project points out, because this is one of the things that people ripped them apart for. Well, you're saying the war was, the American War for Independence was about slavery. And if you follow the logic of the British, maybe it was. Right, so I mean, this is this is where people have to be careful with these things. You you get into this proposition nation stuff, and it's going to lead you down these paths. Of course, there were honorable people like um, uh, Henry Kidd D Douglas, uh, whose book I wrote with Stonewall, Clyde Wilson talked about on Friday, and um, great. You know, this this is an interesting interesting book, and it's one of these memoirs. And Clyde says that. Um, 
There's, there's other memoirs, uh, Richard uh, Taylor's Destruction and Reconstruction, Raphael Sem's Memoirs of Service Afloat and Ashore. Um, but uh, this, uh, this, this book I wrote with Stonewall is something that he says you should definitely read as well. And um, it's one of those great memoirs of the war. Now, just like last week, we also had some literature this week. And this is another piece by Brandon Meeks. It's The Fox Hunt, which is fantastic. Uh, always funny. You know, the South led the way in American humor. There would not be American humor without the South. Uh, and most of the great comedians in American history have been from the South. Um, and this is about a fox hunt, but not really. It's about what you do when you're on the fox hunt. And it was you know, drinking bootleg liquor. I mean, that's what they were doing on the fox hunt. And... Um, it's hilarious. Uh, you know, this, this is up in Arkansas in the Ozarks, right? And so you've got this, uh, these guys going out there to hunt foxes, quote-unquote, when they don't really do any shooting or anything. They just go out there and get in the woods and have some camaraderie, right? Some fellowship. And uh, that's something that really is lost in America today, you know, uh, this fellowship that you know, people had and getting out in the woods and just enjoying nature. That's um, why a lot of people do these things. But um, certainly... This piece speaks to that, too, and uh, I love Brandon Meeks and his writing style. It's just so fun, and if you haven't read Brandon Meeks on our website, you certainly need to do that. Okay, well, uh, we had a great week at the Institute, and thanks for tuning in. Until next time, good day. Good day.